Uh, I'm going to tell you a few things about myself, because a lot of you probably don't know me. I'm not a New Yorker. My home's in Peoria, Illinois. And, uh... I'm from an average-type family. Eleven kids. No mother and father, just kids. When I was young, I used to think my people didn't like me, because they used to send me to store for bread, then they'd move. I noticed when I was young, like, my people, if they didn't want to holler at you, they'd make a funny move with their body. You ever had your parents do this? If you're doing something wrong, they'd look at you and go... And I, I had a wild neighborhood, i got to tell you, because uh, my mother's Puerto Rican, my father's Negro, and we lived in a real big Jewish tenement building. In an Italian neighborhood. Every time I go outside, the kids say, Get him! He's all of them! I, I like New York. I live here. I'm a bachelor. I got my apartment. I find bachelors have a lot of hang-ups, like preparing your own food. You ever fix coffee? You get the coffee can down off the cabinet, right? Take the key off the top of the can. You put on that little doohickey. You know what you bleed from, right? <laughs> Turn it halfway around the can. And it breaks off, right? You got to get a spoon. You dig in there with a spoon, raise up just enough, stick your hand in there, cut your fingers, right? <laughs> and guys only know one way to open a can of evaporated milk. Sit the milk on the table, put a butcher knife on top of the can, slam down the can, go sailing through the kitchen. <laughs> on the table, put a butcher knife on top, slam down, the can rolls over, a knife sticks to the table and you hurt your hand. <laughs> then you get real mad. You grab that can, put it tightly between your knees, put the butcher knife on top of the can, slam down as hard as you can, and you stand there and crop. <laughs> that was Richard Pryor in 1964, at the very beginning of his career making his first television appearance. Richard Pryor would go on to be the single most influential comic performer of the second half of the 20th century, and certainly he was the most successful black comedian ever. Controversial always and enigmatic throughout his lifetime, Pryor's performances opened up whole new vistas, merging fantasy with angry reality in a way that wasn't just new, it had been previously unthinkable. Now, in a fascinating new biography, Joe and David Henry bring Pryor back to life, both as a man and as an artist, providing an in-depth profile of his talent and his lasting influence. It is my pleasure to welcome David Henry and Joe Henry here to talk about Furious Cool, Richard Pryor and the world that he made. David, Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Great to have you both here. How did two guys that are not comedians, one of you is a screenwriter, the other a musician, how did you get interested in writing about Richard Pryor? Well, when we were young, there were a few artists that just uh, sent lightning through us. You know, we were young enough not to question it, but just to receive it. Uh, Bob Dylan being one, you know, Miles Davis, Muhammad Ali being a couple others, and, and, and Richard Pryor. Um it wasn't so much that he was a comedian, it's just that he was a, a human who was unveiling his humanity in a way that uh, made us feel connected. To what extent, David, did the fact that Pryor had come from the Midwest also, as you guys did, to what extent did that play a role in your interest and fascination with him? Um, I don't know that that so much did, but uh, but what we learned about where he came from in the Midwest, from Peoria... Uh, though we we came of age in the Midwest, we were actually from the South. We were both born in North Carolina, uh, lived time in, uh, for a few years in Georgia. But uh, Richard Pryor's community in Peoria actually was made up of people who migrated up from Louisiana after World War One. especially his grandmother had come from the Storyville section of New Orleans. So even though he's a Midwesterner, it's it's really key to understand that he lived in pretty much a transplanted southern community. You know, you can hear that in the in the characters he does and 
the characters like Mudbone, and especially one of his extended routines where Mudbone goes to visit Miss Miss Rudolph, the voodoo lady. That's more. That's more from uh, he got from his uh, the elders in his community, I think, than anything he saw necessarily firsthand in the middle. And certainly his upbringing in Peoria was less than standard. Talk about having grown up in a brothel and, and what that experience was like for him. Well, if you can imagine, you know, his grandmother uh, being a brothel owner, his mother a prostitute, his father uh, essentially a pimp, you know, his grandfather ran a, a candy store in a pool hall. Um, you know, he was completely surrounded uh, by uh, an underworld of sorts, even though a very successful one. And was abused in every way that a human being, you know, a young person can be abused, you know, sexually, physically, spiritually. Um, he didn't necessarily come from a from a poor background. His mother, his grandmother, uh, was was not only a brothel owner but a successful one. Um, but it, but it was not by anybody's uh, estimation uh, a typical upbringing. And I think when you're you know broken emotionally the way that he was uh, from such a young age. Um, you're going to see life differently. You, you're going to carry a vulnerability that, that, that few people could understand, I think. A vulnerability, David, but also a tremendous amount of pain and, and even rage that, that was pent up inside for so long. Yes, that's true. But Ed, he also presented it in such a way that uh, was so disarming. I mean, I mean, I think the vulnerability that he, he just projected or that he carried um, uh, drew people into what he was saying. Um, he didn't, even when he was talking about racially charged things, he talked about it from a human perspective. He wasn't, it wasn't so much accusing, you know, the white society, white people, what they did to, to, to people of color, to him, but how they, how he experienced it. And it's a, that's a very important distinction, I think, that everybody can identify with somebody who's, Who's in a, you know, who's in in jeopardy or I mean, any that's basic storytelling kind of thing. You know, show a character, show someone in in a precarious situation, you identify with them, and I think that's you know part of his genius. And Joe, talk a little bit about him getting started doing stand up, the earliest days of it. Well, you know, he liked to say that when he was very young, you know, he was running across the. Uh, uh, yard one day and 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 slipped in in dog droppings and everybody laughed and he said I just kept slipping ever since <laughs> I continued to slip because they got laughs but you know he was um, he was theatrical even in his elementary school days and he was such a cut up in class uh, imitating different characters and doing scenes that at one point just to keep peace in the class his teacher this is probably you know, maybe uh, third or fourth grade, uh, um, you know, made a deal with him that if he would behave himself all week, she'd give him 10 minutes on Friday afternoon to do a routine. One of the things that you talk about with Pryor is the degree to which he lived his life really in the moment, that there was no real broad perspective at many points in his life. How early did we see signs of that? Well, I would think that, that by the early 70s, when he'd really found his voice, um, you know, his such, you know, such a singular voice as a as a performer and a and a um, observer of of, of behavior. Um, certainly, if you see those routines, he he is so completely out on a wire, like you know, a very skilled and learned, but but 
an, impro- uh, an improviser, you know, very much like Charlie Parker, who he loved so dearly, you know, who had this incredible gift and, and, and worked incredibly hard to sharpen that blade um, so that, you know, in, in Parker's words, when he actually got up to play, you could forget all of it. And I think Richard adopted that pretty early on. There was this complete lack of inhibition when he was up there on stage. David, talk about that. Right, he was absolutely fearless in what he would talk about about himself and what and and you know his personal fears and failings and um, yeah, it, it was it's quite striking. I mean, I think that's again we're talking about his vulnerability when somebody puts themselves out there like that. It's it's impossible not to to want to go with him and uh, and I think that's that's partially or to a large degree what was so. Um, appealing about him besides what you know the genius of his performance and that clip you played at the outset you know some of the biggest laughs even early early on there some of the biggest laughs come a few moments after he said anything just by his physical gestures and even with the biggest laugh there when he says i'm from peoria there's just a look on his face when there's no applause forthcoming is <laughs> what really gets the laugh Joe, talk about how he learned to talk about race, because it was it was an ongoing process, and certainly the way he talks about it in this clip from 1964 is very different than the way he talked about it in the 70s. Well, I think that's true, but, but what's uh, distinctive about the way he approached the whole subject was that he could do it and would do it in a way that didn't indict the people he was speaking to. It's quite different if you listen to a comedian, for instance, you know, early on who would have been challenging to an audience and people get defensive, some people walk out, some people get angry. But he had a way of talking about, you know, our our, our shared uh, hurts and and in a way that, that people could see themselves in him and were willing to. And when David was talking earlier about that vulnerability, the fact that he begins by offering, you know, uh, you know his own dysfunction, his own hurt, his own disappointments, all those things that 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 pull you in rather than brush you back. Um, that's what allowed people to to really take it in and recognize themselves in his story, and not again, you know, not not be indicted by what he's saying, but 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 feel invited to the conversation. I think that's uh, an incredibly important uh, distinction to make. How much of it was this high wire act of, of trying to find the right tone, the right balance that, that we touched on earlier, and how much of it was a certain degree of recklessness that was always so much a part of prior, Joe? Well, I think he just had an instinct for it, and that doesn't mean that he didn't work really hard to develop it. Um, but I think from the from the earliest days, you know, there there is a lovable light coming out of him that that is completely compelling and some of that of course is is polished uh you know because he was a as we learned you know he worked really hard at his craft you know it it it, it um pays a disservice to him to suggest you know that he just sort of had it and didn't have to work at it he really worked at it but there was something very instinctive about getting up on a stage and 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 completely revealing himself in a way that made him so vulnerable you know to an audience that they that they leaned in david what price did he pay for that vulnerability for the fact that he was willing to expose himself in such a raw emotional way well i think maybe doing that actually helped him somewhat i mean people who knew him very well knew him for a long time and you know especially when speaking of his his drug abuse 
would say that he had this sort of emptiness inside, this, uh, this either pain inside that couldn't be numbed or this void that couldn't be filled. But I think when he was on stage, he could, he, I said he found it much easier to talk to 5,000 people than to talk to someone one-on-one. And I think that really kind of you know, freed him when he was out there on stage. I think he, he was able to, to, uh, to push himself, to find his, uh, his, to test his limits. And, uh, but his daughter, Elizabeth, did say she thought that sometimes just like the coming down from the high of performing contributed a lot to his, to his unhappiness. Or his, and he also felt guilty about sometimes not only you know, revealing truths about himself, but that he would re- felt sometimes like he had maybe revealed too much about uh, people he cared about. I don't know that that's, if that's really true or not, but that was an interesting observation on her part because when he was out there on stage, he would get into a role, into a character, into a thing, and, and go with it wherever it led him in that moment. And I think sometimes he went into places he he uh, he thought maybe he you know maybe had had violated some trust or something from you know someone he cared about. But. Joe, you talked about how hard he worked and how he polished and worked on his craft continuously. How much of what he did was improvisational and how much of it was, was practiced? Well, again, uh, to go back to, to Charlie Parker as a point of reference, um, you know, one of the most gifted uh, improvisers, not only in the history of jazz, but in the history of music. Um, but you can't get there unless you've dedicated, you know, uh, Tremendous amounts of time and, and focus uh, to, to developing your, your your craft and 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 your very singular voice. And I think I think that's true of Richard. I think he, you know, he worked incredibly hard to be able to be as free as he was, you know, in a moment of performance. You know, you don't just get up there and 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 quote unquote go with it. You know, unless you've you know you've practiced. Uh, what that really means. Who were those that had a profound, the cultural, cultural influences, comedic influences? What were the, the, the influences that were profound on him? Well, Lenny Bruce was a big one mm-hmm. very early on, you know. Um, he, t- uh, Richard told a story about, uh, going home, uh, f- you know, from a club date one night with a woman and, and rather than just jumping into bed, she put on a Lenny Bruce record. And it said it just completely blew his mind. You know, the record opens with a, a routine called Lima, Ohio, where Lenny Bruce, he's not telling jokes. He's just, um, you know, talking about what it's like to be a Jewish comedian from New York, you know, stranded in a in an Ohio town on a week's engagement and who he encountered as he, you know, got through the day. And Richard said he was just absolutely devastated by the theatricality of being able to just create this scene. Um, so I think, you know, Lenny was uh, enormous for him in that way and, and was uh, a, a great inspiration for him sort of saying, well, if Lenny's going to, you know, tell his own story that way, I'm going to go back and, and tell the stories I've been hearing in my head my whole life. Was it more complicated, Joe, for Pryor because of the racial aspect, because they there was the sensitivity of the racial material which was perceived one way by black audiences and perhaps a different way by white audiences? I would never suggest to you that that, that was not difficult. <laughs> I mean, it had to be. Um, and in that regard, he was fearless. But uh, as we've touched on earlier, you know, he found a way to do it that, that didn't offend people. I mean, that's why I think he, he's, he so quickly found his way to such a broad audience in, you know, uh, in the mainstream, is that he could talk about it in the most 
uh, candid uh, ways and talk about you know absolute brutality of of African Americans in this country and our you know in the history and and in the present his present and this present you know it it still translates of course uh, sadly enough but you know he was able to do that you know in a way that people could accept and and that's that set him apart from from most everybody else. Talk a little bit, both of you, David, start with you, about the evolution of his work and really reaching a kind of apogee in the early to mid-70s. Talk a little about that. Yes, well, he started off doing, um, you know, very risque kind of uh, after-hours material, even when he was very young on the Chitlin circuit. He toured with, uh, he sometimes shared bills with Red Fox and LaWanda Page, who were both veterans at that point but yeah he sort of did that for a while till he saw a full page article about bill cosby in newsweek while he was out on tour i think in toronto and he just said you know this guy's doing what i'm fixing to do and there's they're only going to let one of us in at a time so he he very soon after that kind of developed a more once he actually saw bill cosby he very he made a very conscious decision to start doing that kind of family friendly you know, innocuous kind of jokes compared to what he had been doing, and he did that till it just uh, till he sort of burned out. Had a famous meltdown in Las Vegas. Was already very successful, and just felt like he couldn't. He wasn't being true to his his gift, his his real talent, and he just sort of had a meltdown and walked off stage, dropped the mic and left. And said, you know, he was told you'll never work in this town again, and he never did. <laughs> but yeah, that that led him to kind of he checked out for a little while he tried to make a film that was never finished on his own and um the whereabouts of it are unknown and he uh, sort of sequestered himself in berkeley for a couple of years in an apartment with just a mattress and a typewriter and a record player and he read malcolm x and listened to marvin Gaye and miles davis and his friend paul mooney had introduced him to uh to the black panthers to huey p newton who had been paul mooney's classmate in high school and that's when he kind of came back after that, um, sort of as the Richard Pryor we still remember, that process of kind of radicalization, I guess, in Berkeley, where he really started experimenting with the, using the N-word for the first time. Joe, talk a little bit about this period. Well, I think what Dave just described uh, about Berkeley in particular is, is significant, you know, where he sort of, you know, flamed out trying to imitate Bill Cosby and, you know, Retreats and and does his version of, of of woodshedding in an apartment in Berkeley and feels challenged, you know, to be relevant, you know, not just to be funny, uh, but to really be part of the bigger conversation. And you know, I, th- I think that's you know that is the turning point. That is when you hear him, you know, really uh, own what it means not only to be an African American in this country at that moment, but to be that particular African African American in this country at that moment. Talk a little bit about his fascination with film. That, that As successful as he was doing stand-up, he wanted to be in movies. Joe? Well, his friend Paul Mooney said, you know, given the choice uh, between being a great artist and being a, a, a superstar, he's always going to choose, he would have always chosen to be a star. And I think maybe that just goes back to, you know, the the compulsion that we all feel to be affirmed you know, to really be recognized, um, that's irresistible. And I'm sure, as a struggling artist, you, you you know, you imagine that if I can just get up there 
and start making some real money and getting some real notoriety, then I can do, you know, whatever I want. Then I'll go do the real work. And then I think once you begin that, uh, it's hard to step off that conveyor because you know, as soon as you get a little bit more successful, you know, uh, there are more family hanging on to you, uh, looking to be supported, you know, uh, if you're doing more drugs, you know, there are more women. Every every distraction gets bigger, and then you think, well, I just need to do another big movie, and then I'll be set, then I can go back to the real work. And I think, you know, once he began that process, it was really hard for him to get back to that thing that was most unique to him as an artist. Once he started doing movies, did he ever really get back to it in the same way? I don't think so. I don't think he ever got back to, you know, I, I mean, I, I think that his kind of zenith moment, uh, for anybody who wants to go look, is the 1979 film uh, Richard Pryor Live in Concert, which was uh, filmed in Long Beach. You know, he is as, uh, it's still the greatest piece of stand-up ever filmed. You know, you have an hour and ten minutes, something like that, of, of a man alone on the stage with a microphone talking about everything that matters, you know, love, God, death, sex, marriage, race, mortality, family. Uh, it's unbelievable what he covers and the way that he does it. Um, but once he started making mainstream film for other people, you know, where there's a director who's dictating pace, where there's a writer who's writing the material, there's other actors who are changing his rhythm, um, it's not playing to any of his strengths. I don't think he ever really got back. You were talking about Paul Mooney before. He's quoted as saying that, that Pryor was a junkie first, a genius second. What did he mean by that? You know, that that you know, he surrendered so much of himself um and and early enough on you know, to the pursuit of, of, of drugs you know, as Dave said earlier, that would either, you know, uh numb the pain that couldn't be numbed or fill the void that wouldn't be filled. Um that that superseded everything else. Talk about his relationship with Miles Davis, Dave. Well, he was a huge fan of Miles Davis, and and vice versa. Miles Davis recognized him very early on when he saw him in uh, Greenwich Village, and um, invited him to to open for him, and uh, made a very magnanimous gesture uh, midway through the engagement of flipping the bill, where he said, "You know, I'm going to open." and you know, he he believed so much in Richard Pryor and, and wanted to help him reach an audience that you know Miles Davis offered to open for Richard Pryor when he was still virtually unknown. Joe, talk a little bit about his relationships with women and and his behavior. Well, uh, complicated and conflicted uh, to be sure. I mean, most of his relationships were that, but with women in particular. Um, and without being uh, trying to play psychoanalyst, I'm not one of those. <laughs> You know, here's somebody who grew up uh, in a household uh, of women, but but they were, you know, uh, women in service. Um, and y- y- you have to imagine that if if you're a, if you're a tiny child and you witness your mother turning tricks in a brothel, and your grandmother is you know is the one uh, putting all that into motion, that it it might. Um, it might shadow how you uh, imagine women and their and you know in their role in society. And I'm I'm not sure that he ever really uh, learned to see it another way. David, talk a little bit about the freebase incident that certainly got an awful lot of attention for Pryor, not in the best possible light. Right. That's when he really became um, started. You know, became a, a film star. That's like when he got deep into freebase, and this was right during the uh, the filming of Stir Crazy, 
which I think was the first time he was paid a million dollars to do a movie. And I think, and who knows why, we were just talking about trying to psychoanalyze him, and we can't really do that. But he ended up back home after the filming, and he spent weeks um, just alone in his bedroom, for the most part, with his free days pipe. And, you know, he missed calls, missed appointments. People came in and tried to help him, and he just got to a point where his girlfriend at the time, uh, Kathy McKee, said, you know, we see somebody in that situation, there's no way back from that. So either he's going to decide to get help or he's or he's done for. And she said, I could not see him getting help. And he was essentially done for, but he miraculously survived. But it was a suicide attempt, which most people, I mean, he didn't own that for a while. He always talked about it, um, and, the, and the media talked about it as if it had been a freebasing accident. You know, his pipe exploded, you know, terrible accident. You know, but we learned later that he had just become so demoralized once he'd smoked everything there was to smoke uh, and and took the 150-proof rum that he used to, to, to ignite his pipe and poured it over his body and set himself on fire. How would Pryor like to be remembered, do you think? Well, I would assume he'd want to be remembered uh, uh, not as, like, the greatest comedian, but as a great artist. You know, um, David and I talked a lot as we ramped up towards this project of saying, you know, our, our, our hope was not to, you know, place him, you know, on a on a tier of other comedians, but to put him on the landscape with, with the most significant artists um, that, that, that have come out of this country. And that would have to be, as we said earlier, you know, uh, Bob Dylan, Miles Davis, um, you know, but also, you know, Mark Twain and, and Buster Keaton. I mean, that's the level on which he was working. You can't really talk about him any other way uh, authentically, I don't believe. You can't just rate him as another comedian and say he's the greatest comedian of all time, which I think he was. But I think he was one of the great uh, visionary voices. I mean, he connected things for people that nobody else could connect. And yet his influence on comics up to this very moment is still so profound. I mean, he literally changed the business of stand-up in, in some powerful ways. Well, he, oh, yeah, he certainly did that. Absolutely true. I mean, people who saw him, people who were performing with him at the Comedy Store in 72, 73, you know, recognized that you know, we can't keep doing what we've been doing after seeing this. David Henry, Joe Henry, the book is Furious Cool, Richard Pryor and the World That Made Him. It's just out from Algonquin Books. David, Joe, I thank you both very much for spending time with us. You're very well. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. One thing I got out of it was magic I'd like to share with you. You know, it's like I was leaving and I was sitting in the hotel and a voice said to me, said, look around. What do you see? And I said, I see all colors of people doing everything, you know. And the voice said, do you see any niggas? I said, No. And say, you know why? Because there aren't any. And it hit me like a shot, man. I started crying and shit. I was sitting there. I said, yeah, I've been here three weeks. I haven't even said it. I haven't even thought it. And it made me say, oh, my God, I've been wrong. I've been wrong. I got to regroup my shit. I mean, I said, I ain't going to never call another black man a nigga. You know, because we never was no niggas. That's a word that's used to describe our own wretchedness. 
And we perpetuate it now because it's dead. That word's dead. We men and women, we come from, we come from the first people on the earth. <laughs> you know, the first people on the earth were black people. Because anthropologists, white anthropologists, so the white people go, that could be true, you know. Yeah, Dr. Leakey and them found people remains five million years ago in Africa. You know them motherfuckers didn't speak French. So black people, we the first people had thought. Right? We was the first one to say, where the fuck am I? And how do you get to Detroit? So you can take it for what it's worth. I know, like, I ain't trying to preach nothing to nobody. I'm just talking about my feelings about it. And I don't want them hip white people coming up to me, calling me no nigga, or telling me nigga jokes. I don't like it. <laughs> I'm just telling you, it's uncomfortable to me. I don't like it when black people say it to me. I really don't no more. It's nothing. It don't mean nothing. So I love y'all, and you take that with you. I guess y'all say it. <laughs>